This episode of All Things History with Amhissa was made in association with the University of Manitoba History Students Association. The University of Manitoba campuses are located on the original lands of the Anishinaabeg, Cree, Oji Cree, Dakota, and Dene peoples and on the homeland of the Métis Nation. We respect the treaties that were made on these territories, we acknowledge the harms and mistakes of the past, and we dedicate ourselves to moving forward in partnership with Indigenous communities in a spirit of reconciliation and collaboration. Hello everyone, and welcome to All Things History with Amhissa. I am your host, Hannah Bolek. And today we are joined by Associate Professor of Women and Gender Studies and History at the University of Manitoba, Professor Jocelyn Thorpe. So welcome, Professor Thorpe. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> uh, today we will be discussing Professor Thorpe's research and course in social history. Um, so in the fall, you'll be teaching Canadian social history, which is history uh, 4890. And according to the description, it's a study of the evolution of Canadian society with intensive analysis of topics such as the pioneer community, immigration, ethnic history, and urban development. And you um, research similar things um, just from what I've uh, read, it seems you view history, uh, specifically colonialism in Canada, with a critical race, feminist, power, and environmental lens. Uh, you focus on how history has led to social and environmental inequalities today. Would you say that is your what kind of encompasses your research? Yep, totally. <laughs> um, yeah, I actually, when I read that course description, I thought, uh oh, this seems like it's not what we're going to do here. But then I was told by the higher ups that that actually is totally regular, you know, that sometimes we need to update course descriptions. And so it's totally fine to do this as sort of an environmental slash social history and a critical analysis of, you know, how it is that um, current day uh, social and environmental inequities have come to be. Okay, so this course will have more of a focus on environmental history, I guess. That's, exactly. that's super interesting. So to start off, how important is education in the fight for social justice? Uh, what does teaching these issues mean to you? You know, I think I got interested in history because I was interested in social justice. So it was kind of a question of, um, how did we come to be organized how we are how do we know what we know what's taught what's not taught whose histories are taught whose histories are not taught and then what do we not know um so the first time that i learned about the history of colonialism in canada was actually not until my third year of university in a gender studies course that was called something like transnational feminisms gender race and nationalism and I learned about the Kodagama Maru, the um, ship that came from India to Canada and was turned away in the early 1900s. And I had been learning about the history of colonialism in the rest of the world and sort of the um, effects that European colonialism had had on people and places in other parts of the world. And yet in the middle of that class, that was the first time that I thought, oh, colonialism happened here too. And so then I kind of had to go back to everything that I knew and heard and was taught about the history of this place I lived in. And, and I realized how much I didn't know and how much um, we weren't taught about settler colonialism and its effects, particularly on Indigenous peoples, uh, but also on the environment itself, even how we come to understand the land. What is Canada? What is nature? What is wilderness? What is the city? And so those were the questions really that led me to grad school. Um, and so I think when you ask about education, it's it's a tricky one because, as you know, then um, residential school history is a history of education in Canada. And that has been a profound way in which 
racism has been entrenched both for both for indigenous and for non-indigenous peoples right so that indigenous peoples and this is something Murray Sinclair has talked about indigenous peoples were taught through the residential school system that they were inferior to non-indigenous peoples just as non-indigenous peoples were learning in their own schools that they themselves were superior to indigenous peoples Murray Sinclair and survivors of residential school have talked about the importance of education in um, challenging colonialism. And so it's an interesting irony, or it shows the power of education, both to uphold the status quo, but also to challenge that same status quo. And so I think education is a powerful tool, but we need to be aware of the degree to which it's never innocent it's never apolitical it's it's not neutral and yes, i think yes. the way in which we sort of think about education as oh we're just learning the things that we have to know and that there's not value they're not ethics there aren't morals but of course those things are implicated in how it is that we come to know what we know what we learn what we don't learn and so on and so for me a lot of why I think the stuff that I teach is important is because it was the stuff that I didn't learn. And I do see that changing, you know, with my kids, I see them learning a very different version of Canadian history than the one that I learned. Um, and that's in part because of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and all the things that have happened that have made it impossible, I think, for sort of quote unquote regular Canadians to ignore the history of colonialism that has created Canada. Mm -hmm. Most definitely. And with the events that have occurred over um, the past year and um, with COVID as well, some of these uh, social inequalities for um, Indigenous peoples and other uh, ethnic groups in Canada have been heightened or brought to the forefront. Were you made aware of any inequalities that exist in the post-secondary education system because of these events? I think that the inequalities were always there. Yeah. Uh, they've been maybe made to come to the mainstream consciousness more. I would say that that's the difference, that mm -hmm. it's not a surprise that COVID would exacerbate inequalities just as anything else would, a flood, a tornado. We've seen things like that, that if you have access to money, then you're more easily able to access the privileges that come along with that. And then mm -hmm. since, you know, how much money people have is associated with gender and race and these intersecting identities, then, then of course that shapes how it is that people are able to weather certain storms. Right. Um, and so at the university, I think that's, I don't know that it's been made more clear, but it is very clear. Mm -hmm. I think education truly is a privilege. And I think often from my experience, it's students for whom education hasn't come easily, who often see it as a privilege or a way to get what it is that they want. And I think that they're more aware of that, whereas often people who grow up with a certain amount of privilege, including the idea that, oh yeah, I go to school, it mm -hmm. just happens. And so they don't necessarily think about getting to learn about things as, as a privilege, because of course you can't learn unless you're fed and sheltered and yes, exactly and all of those things. So I think COVID really shows um how much extra we have in life how how few things truly are essential and then right. i think we have had a rethinking of what kind of work is considered essential because collectively we have a strange value system so that we say this person who works in a fancy bank getting paid a lot of money is valuable when actually we see you when there's a crisis, we could really do without that, <laughs> but we can't do without the person who is at the grocery store. We can't do without teachers. We can't do without healthcare workers. So they're not necessarily jobs that are valued and then people who are valued in those jobs. And so I hope that we've had kind of a reckoning of what truly is important. And for me, I think education comes quickly after those fundamentals. Mm -hmm. Once we are safe, once we are housed and healthy, then 
I think that's the next thing. And I think parents have seen, seen that so much in the pandemic, right? The, the degree to which our kids want to learn, our kids want to be in schools, our kids want to be with other kids and their teachers, and then how much everything else depends on that too, that, that we are unable to do our work unless our kids are at school. And so education isn't far away from, I think, an essential service. So, so to me, the question of COVID and it does exacerbate inequalities. And of course, if you lose your job, it's hard to make a living and it's much harder to go to university. And so if you have some kind of padding or parents who have secure jobs or all that kind of stuff, then of course you're more able not to worry about it. Mm -hmm. And so I think, I think that's what I think about it in terms of education. It's sort of, there are things that get in the way of being able to complete an education and that's for everybody, mm -hmm. but for who have had histories of marginalization, there are more things getting in the way. So tuition is more expensive. It's more of a hurdle for somebody who has less money than more money. So these are the things that are obvious, but I don't think that we always think about them. Or for example, I think about uh, this film that's called This River. That's a really great film. Um, and in it, it's, it's talking about uh, people who have gone missing um, and are murdered in Winnipeg and, and drag the red. So the the activism of Indigenous peoples looking for their loved ones in the river and looking for anyone really. But Kate Vermette, who's the uh, writer, who who was one of the filmmakers and who also wrote the poem that was the title of that, of that book that led to the film, um, she says at one point, everyone knows someone who's gone missing. And she said that at the time that she said that, she just kind of said it and then as she learned more, and especially as she met more Indigenous people, then that part really rang true for them, that it was like, oh yeah, we all know someone who's gone missing. But for non-Indigenous peoples, that's often not true. We don't, we, we don't all have a sister, a mom, an auntie who's gone missing or has been murdered. And so that kind of devastation in a family is a, a result of racism and sexism. But that is something that gets in the way of life. It would be, it would for anyone, but the fact is that some people bear that kind of stuff disproportionately means also a disproportionate negative effect for things like going to university. It's definitely um, so important to view things in an in intersectional manner because there's so many um, different parts of people's lives that impact um, like education. It seems like to some of us, you never think about these connections or how intertwined um, certain parts of people's lives are to, you know, their chance to get an education or um, live life in the way maybe they want to. What is the importance of viewing historical disciplines as intertwined rather than separate? So we see these inequalities um, or we maybe not quite understand them, but we recognize that they impact um, parts of people's lives in uh, disproportionate ways. So how do we view that in the historical discipline or why is it important? Stay with me here, I promise. I promise that's the answer just in a long way around. Yeah. Okay, so people, always so I teach primarily in women's and gender studies, which is a field that really only exists because of a lack of attention to the way in which systems of oppression operate in other disciplines right so if you think right. about history, well there's no real need for women's history, if it is that history in the first place pays attention to women. The same with Black History Month, any of those things if history, the discipline had been doing a good job from the first from the outset of paying attention to all the people and then if we expand it to say well actually the non-human environment profoundly shapes history how we experience anything this covid is such a perfect example of that right we can't understand this time without paying attention to a microbe and so if we don't pay attention to the microbe in the story we're missing a big part of the story mm -hmm. and similarly if we're not paying attention to all the people who existed, then we're not good, doing a good job of telling the story. And so it's a result of 
paying attention to a fraction of history and calling it history that has led to things like environmental studies, black studies, indigenous studies, all these disciplines that have cropped up in order to say, hang on a second. So those, those disciplines or those interdisciplines often start out as a critique of the discipline or as a way of trying to add to the discipline to say, well, women were in the past, maybe we could study women too, right? And so then suddenly, not suddenly, but over time, then that becomes its own kind of subfield as if it was separate from the thing. So then to say, oh, you study women's history, you're an expert in women's history, forgets that actually part of studying women's history is to say, knock, 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 hey, history that forgot about women, women were there all, all along. And if you don't include them in the story, you're not telling the whole story. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so yeah, so I think if you don't recognize that that's how it is, then it's possible to understand any of those sub disciplines in a much more limited way than really they're meant to be. Because, because for example, Black History, to have Black History Month makes it seem like it's okay to have 11 months of Black History Free Month, which is a ridiculous concept. And yet you can see where people are coming from when they're adding, when they're saying, we need to have a gender studies department or we need to have whatever. But I always say that I would be totally happy to work myself out of a job because, you know, it's like, oh, look, every, everyone's got it covered. <laughs> and so therefore we don't need to have this analysis anymore. But right. yeah. So would you say a goal um, in teaching this Canadian social history course and other courses you have taught or will teach in the future uh, is a goal for that to, rather than have these separated disciplines, create a more um, intertwined story of the social history that you teach? That's a really cool way to think about it, I think. Yeah, I always find in my intro to gender studies classes that I feel like I'm doing a good job if students come up to me and say, I thought this course was going to be a course about women, but it turns out it's about how the world works. And I'm like, yes, okay. <laughs> yes. So I think that's what it is, that if we, if we fail to understand that what we're studying is not the whole world, it's a framework for studying the world, then, then it's easy to misunderstand. I don't know if that makes sense. Like I think humans, we're always perceiving things in human ways. And we're always in history, for example, using limited archival materials in order to make sense of a complicated past. And so that's not the past itself. And anybody who does historical research knows that, you know that you're sifting through and that it's, it's not complete and you're trying to tell a story and you're trying to tell one story and in telling one story, you're not telling lots of other stories, but you have to make a coherent idea. And it, you, I don't mean to say that you're making something out of nothing, but I think that mm. being aware of the fact that you're making something out of an imperfect record is an important part of the story that you tell. So yes, I would say that I, I always hope that, well, for in this class, I hope students take away the idea that we can't really understand history very well without taking into consideration the non-human world. And in part by considering that world, we appreciate it too. I think that's part of it. And, and that goes to all of the things that if we then pay attention to black history, then we gain more of an appreciation for, oh, look at how racism worked in the past. And also look at how people who were racialized challenged that system and ended slavery. And, you know, so you see, you see both the importance of the people and the other than people who were part of those stories. And also you see, um, you see a, a bigger, like you see more of the picture. So yeah, I think that's a fair way. I guess, I guess I want students to think they know less in a way. <laughs> I think that's the other thing. There's so many books to read and there are so many things and you could spend your whole life reading all the things that exist and still you don't really know what it was like to be in the 1950s as whatever mm -hmm. but there it is <laughs>
you mentioned in your article um, about residential schools that the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission report is something that you encourage everybody to read because it really shows a side of the story of residential schools from Indigenous people directly that non-Indigenous people um, may, may have never heard before. And it allows everyone to kind of gain a new understanding. Um, will you be using this as a tool in your classes or have you already? I use the TRC report quite a bit, yeah. I would say that that's exactly exactly what I would say where you just said, uh, because the the story of residential schools as told by the historical records that existed prior to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it's a story told by the government, by government reports, by Indian agents, by teachers, by priests, by, yeah. And there's even within that documented work, you see critiques of the system. So Peter Bryce, uh, who Cindy Black talks about, was a doctor who in the early 1900s said that this is a medical crisis. These schools, this, this cannot be happening. It's a grave social injustice. It's a health crisis. And he, in fact, was fired from his job. So it's not that there weren't people speaking up against the schools during the times of residential schools. Mm-hmm. Um, but nevertheless, the majority of the records are not well all of those records are not from the perspective of the students who were going to those schools and so the fact of the trc the gathering of so many statements and so many first-hand accounts about just what it was like to be a student in those schools it's a huge important resource Mm -hmm. and also lots of survivors of residential school gave those testimonies in part because they wanted people to be listening to them that right that they wanted this history to be taught in schools they wanted um people who didn't go to the schools non-indigenous and indigenous sometimes people were telling stories that they hadn't told their own family members before um they wanted to tell those stories so that those stories became part of the record and so i do think that being respectful engaged people means engaging with those histories and there they are they're they're accessible for free there's so much to be to be read um and so and i think sometimes like for example with all this statue controversy that's been happening people who are upset about the violence of knocking down a statue they don't often know the history and it it does seem to me that you should say okay well just just read this stuff for a while, you know, and, and you'll probably learn a lot. So, and U of M Press has a short version to knock at, knock on the door, I think it's called. And so there are, and actually that was kind of, I thought a really positive and interesting development is that during all of this statue stuff, um, lots of people ordered that book. And it goes back to this question of is education important? Because it does show Sometimes people do want to know. And when you learn things, it can change how you understand the place you live, who belongs, who counts as a real person and all that stuff. And that that is really important. And to me, that is the promise of education, I guess. Yeah, I think one of the most important things um, for anybody who engages in history or education in general is you have to move past the idea that you're trying to just absorb all of this information and not really questioning it. But a super important part of learning about history is listening and listening to all of the experiences, all of the groups um, that you possibly can. Um, Everybody has a different perspective on anything. And I think a lot of people uh, learning about history tend to not like when their original views um, or thoughts they had are challenged by different perspectives. But I think that's the whole point of history in general is hearing everybody's experiences and then taking from that what you will. Yeah, I agree with you that sometimes there's there is a real divide is that sometimes and I've encountered that with students and history students especially will sometimes just be you know like I am not here to 
question what is history and how do we know what we know about the past i am here to get the facts about the past yeah <laughs> and then that is that's a hard mm -hmm. leap because there is a lot to be known about what happened and when and but then this whole other part which i agree is really the work of doing historical research or analysis which is sifting through that kind of stuff um, and I think the residential schools is a good example because sometimes people will say, oh, well, so-and-so said that they had a positive experience of residential school. And so then you can, you can take that in, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean people had a positive experience of residential school. It doesn't mean therefore the goal of residential school was not to eradicate mm -hmm. indigenous peoples as unique peoples like that those things can be also held at the same time and and both be true and maybe that's part of um what sometimes people have a hard time with is that sometimes things that are in opposition or seeming opposition to each other both are true and i think our environmental crisis at the moment is a really good way of thinking about that too right we depend upon fossil fuels and also fossil fuels are contributing to us living in an increasingly uninhabitable world. Okay, <laughs> so both those things are true. So you can't, it just seems like it's a waste of time to then fight about things that, you know, like oh, I love my car. Great, great, <laughs> right? So you can listen to all the things and then still come up with, I think, an agreed upon narrative, even as you also right. understand that that agreed upon narrative might also change. But the chances of it being a stronger narrative um, are higher if it is that you listen to more people. So for example, if like to take a ridiculous example from the past that people would say, you know, slavery really works. Well, okay, who are you talking to here, right? And so then if you're saying, well, we're going to listen to the oral history of these enslaved people and see how well that works. Okay, it doesn't work for many of the people, all the people who are enslaved, and that's why they're fighting against this system. Um, and so, so yeah, you're going to get a very different story about the past. But also some version of that, like part of the work of then history, or historical analysis is to evaluate those things. Okay, why is it that this is true for this person and this is true for that person? How can that be true? And then that's where you have an analysis. So otherwise, no point in being a historian. Yeah, I think that the idea that history is just meant to be reciting of facts and dates and all this is kind of a fault of the like high school education system because in those high school history classes a lot of the time you are just making sure you have all the dates memorized and what exactly happened but you're not really getting the analysis part of history which is basically what the entire field of history is actually based on and it's funny because when I came to university um, I was not originally planning to uh, major in history but when I realized what the actual like academic field of history does rather than just recite facts and discover okay this happened on this day I realized this is what I want to be doing because getting to hear all of the different sides and like you said figuring out that there are things that contradict but they can both be true that just makes me realize how important history is the field of history and why I want to be a part of it essentially but yeah unfortunately a lot of people only experience the type of history the where you're reading out of a textbook and it's very one-sided I would suggest anybody whoever you are even if you said you hated history before you came to university to take a history course just because I think a lot of times it'll it'll change your mind and hopefully for students that say oh I came here to just memorize all of this you know these historical events maybe they'll kind of change their mind on how they view history and that's it's it's very cool to hear what makes you excited about history and i guess for me i was really interested in i guess 
feminist ideas and Michel Foucault, who you've probably heard of, who talks about this idea that things weren't as necessary as all that. And so it, he does what he calls a history of the present. And so it's this kind of, okay, so how did, how did things come to be this way? And that's what I found really interesting too. So we have these areas that we call Canadian wilderness and yet Indigenous communities say, this isn't Canadian wilderness, this is my territory. And so that was how I started my PhD is I was just like, hmm, how, how did this come to be? How did, how did many people come to think of this specific part of the world as part of the Canadian wilderness when both Canada and the idea of wilderness are historical ideas, not sort of natural facts. And so to me, that was what was so exciting because it, it, it kind of opens things up, right? To say, oh, well, if, if both of these things are products of history and products of relationships of power and effects of colonialism, then they could be a different way too. Things could be different. And I think that kind of loosening up of the present, I found really appealing because it because it opens up the future too, right? If if things weren't as necessary as all that, they happened for these reasons at these times, but those reasons weren't necessarily good. They're not necessarily reasons we agree with now, and yet they've had profound implications in the present, then we can think, oh, how could they be? How could they be different? And and so that's a freeing idea, I think, the possibility that by learning about the past, we can understand better how we came to be where we are, and then also potentially think about different ways of, of being. Mm -hmm. Something kind of off of that, the idea that everything that came about from history is not set in stone. Things can, things can change because if this might have never happened in the first place, if something, you know, else occurred or things went in a different way than they, they did, um, it might be totally different, like you said. So having the chance to not rewrite history because, you know, it's, that's never a good thing because we need to recognize what happened in the past and work to um, move forward or, um, but having like naming of like the Canadian wilderness, like you said, we don't, that's not set in stone just because it's historically been called the Canadian wilderness by a group of people doesn't mean it has to stay that way. And I think that is a really important way for us as a society, especially in Canada, uh, to move forward and create a more equal society. Yeah, totally. I think about that, um, the Canada Day this year, and we went down to the ledge and to the to Portage and Maine, and it was incredible. It was just a sea of orange and it, every child matters. And it, it's such a different message than raw, raw Canada, Canada's the best. And yeah, that, that did make me feel hopeful. And, mm -hmm. and also it, even people who didn't go because of COVID were wearing orange all in the neighborhood. And it, it kind of, yeah, it just made me think ex exactly that. It, just because this has been the way that it is, doesn't mean that it has to be. And also there can be kinder ways forward. And I think partly it's about recognizing all the people as equally human or equally important um, and and that so much of how injustice works is through the dehumanization or lack of respect for some humans and also for the rest of the world too right so this mm -hmm. this idea of well the earth is just what we use to <laughs> destroy <laughs> um it's not it's not a narrative that's working for us any longer. And so that's, that's kind of, it's a good example of something that, okay, well, this way of using what we've come to call natural resources isn't, isn't working. And the narrative that sustains it isn't really working either. This sort of capitalist narrative of endless growth. Well, 
oh dear, we're, we're seeing some repercussions and of, of that idea and, and that idea made reality. And so, yeah, I think to me, it's the, it's the same. The hope is in thinking, but understanding things differently can actually lead to us behaving differently or also the other way around. Behaving differently can also lead us to understanding differently. And yeah, I think sometimes when people say, oh, university, people are just having ideas and ideas don't matter. It makes me mad for that exact reason, because I think, well, ideas matter so much because we're, we're all living in ideas. And it's just, yeah, that's where do you think we're living? But, but because some ideas have become so ingrained in life, like where do you get your food at the grocery store? Or, you know, then, then we don't necessarily think beyond that kind of everyday thinking too. Okay, but where does our food actually come from? And what makes sense? And what makes economic sense? And what makes ecological sense? And who profits from this way of doing it? And how might there be other ways of doing it? And so those kinds of questions are maybe a bit unsettling, because then it means that trip to the grocery store isn't just a trip to the grocery store or whatever. But it is also, I think, what is promising for leading to a, another kind of world. Mm -hmm. It seems that what some people might call unsettling is a sign of hope for a lot of people. And I think all of what we're talking about um, fits with the uh, taking down of the statues and the controversy surrounding the statues, because people think, well, you can't take down these statues. You're um, you're the, by doing this, you're not recognizing history that took place. But I also think if we look at it from another point of view, the, these statues often are, um, putting pe people who the statues represent or the ideas a statue represents on a pedestal. And that obviously is if, depending on what the person, um, who is, on that pedestal has done in the past, um, that is hurtful to people and a sign of hope for them would to not necessarily completely forget what happened or take down the statues and never think of it again and never talk about it again. It's that they're not placed on a pedestal and they're not highlighted as these great people in society when they most likely weren't, um, even if the history books, you know, tell you that. And I think that idea kind of spreads to a ton of things. Many people thought capitalism was the best thing in the, in the entire world, but kind of look where it's led us in, um, our environmental crisis and, um, you know, financial and social inequalities, everything has, a past and it's okay to change our views on things, I think is something that could breed a lot of hope and change. Yeah, I think about sports team names too, for those mm -hmm. that example and the sort of entrenchment in, well, we keep this the same because of tradition and this is the tradition. And then you have to think, but but what is that tradition? Let's look at that tradition. And so when a tradition of a sports team name is also a racial slur, then yeah, then it seems like that's a great time to reevaluate because what do you want to stand behind? Um, and, and those kinds of conversations I think are happening. And I think you're right that it does seem it's not an entirely generational shift because lots of old people like me can think too in new ways. Mm -hmm. But I would say that there is such an emphasis for young people today to, to say, hey, we've grown up with climate change and we've grown up not being sure that this system is gonna work for us even within our generation. And so I think there is a lot more kind of, yep, mm -hmm, we're there already. And, and then less pushback to, oh no, that's not the case, or you're just a crazy hippie, like that kind of putting down of environmental ideas or anti-racist ideas. Oh, that's just so far out there. I think there's, it, there's been a shift to be 
more mainstream this idea that oh women are just as much people as men <laughs> you know those those ideas that of course when you say them out loud it seems like yep that's nobody is an object therefore nobody should be objectified but then if that's the case then we wouldn't need me too and we wouldn't need black lives matter but the fact that we do shows that there's something still to push against but it does seem as though pushing is successful i think the pushing's always been happening but there are kind of moments where it seems like oh this is a sea change and it does feel like that and maybe i'm being optimistic about that too but yeah, a lot of um, what we're speaking about, I guess, has to do with, um, in a sense, naming or recognizing issues. Um, like you said, with the names of sports teams, um, you, a lot of times we need to recognize that, you know, they're a racial slur or whatever it might be, and it's okay to change. Um, but from the other side of the naming and recognizing what do you think the importance is of identifying social inequalities so for example what would be the impact impact of declaring that the atrocities at residential schools were cultural genocide how will naming social inequalities um positively impact uh the groups of people that the inequalities affect? It seems as though a lot of effort has to go in by members of the group to say that a problem is a problem. And the, the Me Too movement is a good example of that, right? That, that, that kind of back and forth between, well, not all men sexually harass women. Okay, fine. That's again, that's one of those things where it's like, oh, yes, Great, <laughs> great. We just we just hope nobody sexually harasses anybody. That would just be fantastic. Um, but but the but the work of it often is to say, hey, this is a problem. Where if you think about the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, the effort that families undertook for years to get there to be a national inquiry is a good example of that, right? Families saying, this is a problem. This is a problem. This is a problem. Until finally. The government really is forced to say, oh, okay, this is a problem. I guess we need to take it seriously. And so that takes up a lot of time and energy, just saying that there's a problem. And, and so I think those things are important to name because then you can say what the problem is, right? The problem is sexism. The problem is racism. And then, of course, like you said, this is why it's important to have an intersectional analysis because sometimes the problem is a Mis mishmash of those things. And so it doesn't make sense to pay attention only to one thing at a time. And so naming is important for that reason that you can say, oh yes, see, that falls into the category of racism. See, this is how we understand racism. I think that when it comes to the cultural genocide part or genocide of any name, then Murray Smith called it that and then I think the trouble with it only was that that seemed to be the only news, right? So that part of what we have is a bit of a, it's, it's important to have media that covers things in thorough and smart ways instead of trying to have it be kind of like, oh, I got you on the hook saying this thing, right? And it seems to me that the reason that people, some people didn't like the idea of um, what happened in Canada being considered to be a genocide was because it made Canada like other places where racism happened, right? Where atrocities related to race and racism happened. And so if that's what the holdup is, well, that's not a, that's not a good enough reason to be a holdup because genocide, well, Andrew Wolford is a genocide scholar at the U of M. You can talk to him too, but he's not in history. Um, but he talks about like genocide is a definition that has been created by humans. And so humans have a list of, okay, this is what fits into a genocide. And then you have that list and then you say, this is what happened here. Does it fit or does it not fit? And so to me, that doesn't seem like overly controversial. To, right. like, like, well, taking all of the children away, check, <laughs> you know? So it's, so it's interesting that then sometimes 
sometimes what you call it can sideline the whole discussion, but I think that's just part of the process of trying to make something not into a problem, into not a problem, if that makes sense. So it's the same as kind of saying like, oh no, it's not sexism, it's just you're wearing the wrong shirt. Oh no, it wasn't rape, you just weren't really clear. So it's that kind of going back, oh no, it's not really genocide because, uh, so yeah. So to me, that's part of just a pushback and yeah, I guess why not name something what it is because it's part of the effort to change the thing. Mm -hmm. You mentioned the media and do you believe that um, a lot of the maybe pushback towards resolving the many issues that impact our society are kind of not halted, but I guess the progress is slowed because of the way the media interprets certain issues, um, portrays them, or perhaps how people react to media? Well, media has become so complicated lately, hasn't it? Yes. Too? <laughs> Social media. And yeah, I was thinking just recently that having something like a newspaper, a public thing that many people read is so important in a way because then you have a shared also because it's then checked for facts and that you know that there's sort of a system in place to say you can't just make up anything that you want and then put it in the news um so that in a way if there could be that that also has justice in mind for for fair right that it's not just that one group of people is the reporters and one group of people um and so that it's always hard because it's then mixed up with profit and media moguls and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, who owns the news? Mm -hmm. Well, complicated, right? But then at the same time with social media, then it, people often are only consuming what it is that they already believe. And so in whatever, and those, whatever you call them, sites, things are hugely profit generating things too. And so, Ugh. I just there's the the conversation. I don't know if you've heard of that. I, it's a it's a news source that I just think is very great because it's it's just I think it assumes a kind of it it assumes that people can be best versions of themselves. That news doesn't have to just be about entertainment. That people do want to know about the world and they care about the world and they want to make the world a better place and they want to have a good understanding of something rather than I just want to be entertained and you know so so yes i think the way in which something is portrayed is hugely important and you have especially in gender studies that that's a something that people concentrate on right that it's you know who who is represented and and in what ways and how does that teach us what we can and can't be and what we can and can't do um but we live in such a media saturated world where it seems like you can see almost anything. And so it really depends where you're looking. So, yeah, so it's even hard to say what is the mainstream anymore, isn't it? Exactly. I think that's one of the downfalls, I guess, of just mass media or social media in general is that, yeah, no matter what you're seeking out, it's usually going to be tailored to, like you said, what you already believe, just even based on like the algorithms that these sites and applications are created with, it's going to automatically do that. So that definitely breeds the issue of lack of proper representation in the sense that maybe most of the media you consume is not coming from the group in which uh, they're talking about or sharing news about. Yeah, that's definitely one of the major downfalls of mass media. And I think that's one of the really important things that I think we've all been learning and especially students um, in uh, school today have to learn how to sift through all of this stuff and figure out how they can educate themselves in the most um, um, unbiased way, which is easier said than done, I guess, because 
just sometimes it's it's hard to tell and it's a skill that we're all going to need to learn as as we progress Absolutely. Well, yeah, just sort of media literacy. How do you trust a source? Who? How do you know what to trust and not trust? And and yeah, I guess we can say that that is we're kind of back to education being important. That, yeah. that, that because because anybody can access almost anything online now. Then universities can't be that kind of old thing of saying hello, I'm the person who's read the books, I'm going to impart that knowledge upon you. Because yeah, anyone can read the books. And <laughs> but so then it is such an important skill to to figure that out. And even things like Facebook and whatever to to say to your kids and your whatever, like, what is the goal of Facebook? Well, Facebook wants to make money. How does it make money? How does it advertise to you? How does it look like it's this unmediated social experience between you and your friends, but that's not what it is. And that those are the things that yeah, they're they're so they're so important to be an awake, kind of alive person. And and it is it it's complicated and mm-hmm. hard. Yeah. Yeah, I think this all kind of circles back to the idea of education and how we're constantly learning and adapting. Have you ever experienced you having to challenge a student's bias in a sense that they're maybe coming into the class with a specific idea of the topic you're teaching and maybe like we said they're a bit unwilling to view other perspectives have you had to kind of work through that especially in um, upper level courses where you have a lot more interaction with the students and you get to know them a lot better just because of the smaller courses and their discussion based. Have you kind of had to work through that or maybe even students have challenged maybe some points that you've brought up? I think often I learn about students challenges to things afterwards, oddly, that that often it's a text that will challenge what it is that people thought about before and engaging with that text helps me to understand what people thought before. I see. So it's not like them necessarily um, write out saying whatever they think, but realizing after they um, have read a text that maybe they had inherent or uh, inherent biases or even unconscious biases about whatever topic. Yeah, exactly. Or I'm thinking about like some sometimes I think, and this relates to this idea of privilege, that when I um, stand in front of a class and talk about the history and legacies of residential school and and also residential schools being part of a broader history of imperialism. Um, and I think this is less over time as people have learned more about this stuff in other, like in other classes or in you know high schools or even elementary schools but sometimes I think I see people looking at me like are you telling the truth right now that's what they look at me like but then I think they also think oh you're a professor and you're white so why would you be lying to me about this history that's I this is what I I think that I see them doing sometimes this kind of like Huh. And, you know, what I've read and talked with people about who are especially Indigenous women profs, that sometimes people will um, not believe them because of who they are, right? This idea that you're invested in this kind of truth. And so you're saying, you're telling these lies. And so sometimes, sometimes when you are talking about the facts about the past that aren't not, I'm not even talking about controversial ideas or ways of thinking, but just this happened, um, then, then it really matters who you are when you say that for in terms of being believed. And even I find that being younger versus being older, right? I've been teaching since 2003. So I was way younger when I started and that kind of thing happened more. Like it was kind of like, who are you? Who are you young woman? Do you even know what you're talking about? And so those are the, those are the things that are interesting because they are dynamics of 
race and gender that play out in the classroom too, right? That people, and speaking of, you know, biases that people aren't aware of, they, they read a body and they think, oh, well, yes, well, here's this person clearly, you know, the same thing with, oh, that there's a, a woman who walks in, oh, and then a man, well, the man must be the doctor and the woman's the nurse. Okay, that's not how it is, but those kinds of unconscious biases um, people do have. And I think that they shape how it is that we interact with our classes because because they're not things that are well i guess you can speak about them right and in those those moments it can be kind of hard because if it's a student if if it's a student saying you don't know what you're talking about they're not necessarily saying because you're young and a woman but they wouldn't necessarily say that same thing to a different person and so yeah i guess you have to be aware in a way of how you carry yourself and who you are in relation to the subject, whatever the subject is. And that can really shape how students engage with stuff. But for me, I just, I really like to have focus on the material because that's one is the one thing that we share. And then I try really hard to have it be that, like you said before, you know, if it is that we're talking about the history of Africville or, or whatever that we're reading, you know, perspectives of people who live there or black scholars that that one way that we can work towards changing whose ideas are represented is by being cognizant of whose books we're reading and and what kind of, you know, who we're inviting as guest speakers, like all of those things really then shape how it is that people think about who's an academic, who writes books, who who has ideas. And if everyone always looks the same, then it's easy to make those same assumptions. And when people start looking really different, then it's, it's harder. Mm -hmm. I was actually going to ask you how you uh, keep your experience as a white person in mind when teaching about, especially the topic of racism, but just what you just said, bringing in individuals, uh, whether they be, you know, scholars or just people who have certain experiences to speak or engaging with certain writing and that you're aware of who wrote it and the perspective it's coming from. Um, yeah, that's a way I guess I've never thought about before on how to kind of break the idea that there's only one kind of person that can teach about a history. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, that idea of expertise is really interesting because there are lots of ways that you can be an expert on something. So you can, I think on the one hand, it's a bit tricky because, because privilege, like, I think there's a way in which now we think of privilege as all bad, you know, that it's, it's mm -hmm. bad to have privilege, but some of the things that are privileges just shouldn't be privileges. They should just be what everybody has, right? So access to healthcare, clean water, um, respectful interactions with people, you know, th these kinds of things that um, I don't think we should say, oh, I have privilege, therefore I shouldn't have privilege or I'm a bad person because I have privilege. It's like, no, 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 no. There are some standards we should have and that that means that everybody would be privileged, which would mean it wouldn't be a privilege. That's just how it is. Um, and so, but I think I think because people, all of us who have any access to privilege, feel guilty about it because it's not fair, right? It's unearned fundamentally, and so there's this kind of like cringy feeling. Who am I to do this? Because I'm only doing this because I had privilege, and therefore I was able to access this space or whatever. Um, but I think that recognizing it is important, and then also going beyond recognition to say, okay, so what are you gonna do about it? And that was actually George Day, who's an anti-racist educator in Toronto, said that to me years ago. He's like, it's not about having or not having privilege. It's about what it is that you do with the privilege that you have access to. The metaphor that I really like for talking about privilege, but it really only works well if you ride your bike. Um, so do you ride your bike? <laughs> are you a bike rider? Okay. So, you know, when you're going somewhere on your bike and the whole way there, you're like, I'm amazing. I feel so powerful. I'm so fast. I'm, I'm making it, you know, it's no time. 
and then you get there and do whatever you're going to do and then you go back and then you're in the wind it and then it's impossible and then you realize oh it was not all you on the way it was because you had an amazing tailwind and so you were being pushed the whole way but you just thought it was all you and so i think that's a good way to think about privilege Although some of my students have said it's not a good way because then it makes it seem like privilege is natural, like the wind. I'm like, okay, but wait, stay with me because it is a good way to think about it because when you have it, when the wind is at your back, you don't even think about it. You can't even feel it, but it's not that it's not there. It's just that you are being pushed along by it. It's only when you try to go against it that you realize how powerful the thing is. And so I think privilege often is the things that we don't even think about, like having access to a book or, you know, so many things. Um, and so I think there's kind of a trite way where we say, oh yes, I'm so privileged, but actually paying attention to how privilege works and acknowledging it and not, say, not saying like, this is all me, I'm so clever because I have a PhD or whatever. But in fact, to say, these are the things that allowed me to do these things. And these are the things that were not getting in my way. So then how can I make sure, or how can I help to make it that those are things that are not getting in other people's way as well? Um, yeah, so, so that's what I have to say about privilege and bike riding. All the lessons <laughs> I learn on my way to the university because <laughs> it's so windy, always one way. <laughs> That's a great metaphor. I've never heard that before. So to kind of wrap up here, what would you say the larger purpose of social history is? Is it breaking down um, power structures that promote uh, racism or sexism? What do you see as the larger purpose of social history for you in your research and teaching? when you said that about showing how power works i would say that that's one of the reasons to me and then or the other or one of the purposes as you said and then another major one is the recognition that everybody is a person mm -hmm. and i guess i could talk about non-human like i don't mean to make a hierarchy between people and not people either but but just that idea that um, some people had more access to power and they were able to shape history in different ways than other people, but other people also were important, also had lives, also shaped the world in their own ways. And that most of us are those smaller people, right? And, and, and if you don't pay attention to them, Again, you miss important ways that the world worked and the ways that the world works now. So I think Black Lives Matter is such a good example of that. This is not one powerful person who's saying, hang on a second, we need to do things differently. This is a groundswell. And, and everything, the people who have greater access to power are having to listen and having to deal with the idea that the statues are gonna be knocked down and that that the status quo needs to change. And so when we don't appreciate that in history, then we then we miss it. Yeah, I think something that we need to recognize about social history moving forward is it's called social history because it's meant to encompass all of um, society, human interaction, and just the way that humans have lived in general. So to put, like you said, to put certain people ahead of others just because they've been able to impact certain historical events or the way things have gone in a more prominent way than others doesn't mean that the other people aren't as important. How do you, uh, in your research and in your everyday life, work to uh, fight social inequality? Um, one of the things that I am part of that I love uh, is called The Decolonizing Lens, which is a film series um, co-organized by the Indigenous curator um, 
well, Jamie Isaac, who just moved jobs, um, and Jocelyn and Julia, two Jocelyns on this project at the WAG, um, and then Kayla Johnston, who is the education coordinator at the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation, and I uh, co-organized this film series. So we um, bring in films by Indigenous filmmakers, and then we invite the filmmakers to join us, and sometimes community community who are working on similar issues, topics, et cetera, for kind of a discussion roundtable afterwards. And, um, and I love it because all of these films are, first of all, showcase the incredible talent of Indigenous filmmakers, um, but also really work to challenge a lot of stereotypes that you still see about Indigenous peoples. Um, in mainstream media. And so it's one way that we can um, bring films that are not necessarily as easy to watch. Uh, not that they're not, they're wonderful to watch, but sometimes, you know, it's easy. It's easy before COVID to go to a movie theater and see some blockbuster, but it's not necessarily easy to see these films that have been maybe on the film festival circuit or made by the National Film Board. And so people don't know about them quite as much. Um, and so it's amazing to get to see the films and then to discuss with the filmmakers what it is that they're thinking when they're doing this stuff. And so one of the things that I've noticed, because we've been doing this series for about five years, is that a lot of the films um, really do challenge stereotypes about Indigenous peoples. And part of the reason that they have to do that is because of stereotypes about Indigenous peoples in film. Um, and so there's this one film that's kind of an old one now too called Real Injun that is about the history of how it is that Indigenous people have been represented in Hollywood. And it's so great because it really shows the problematic character of that. But I think of the film series as really addressing that in a way is, you know, showing the diversity of Indigenous people, interests, communities, um, and yeah, so anyway, so that's a film series that we, it's, it used to be monthly, but now we run them about four times a year through the Winnipeg Art Gallery and they're free and they're accessible to anybody. And now we've been doing um, them online. So it's kind of cool because then people can come from anywhere, but it's also really so nice when we get to be all together at the WAG. So we're thinking about maybe doing some hybrid events now. So yes, it's called Decolonizing Lens and we have a website and a Facebook page. So you can look it up and come, I hope. <laughs> yeah, that's a an amazing way to, um, rather than having a form of media uh, perpetuate a stereotype, which occurs way too often, it rather breaks it down um, and is a great educational tool and way to unlearn certain stereotypes for people. So uh, yeah, I'm definitely going to check out some of those films. Yay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of All Things History with Amhissa. Well, thank you for having me.